and we can fix our eyes on you and nothing else. God, let the words that comes out of Jonathan's mouth not be his words, but be your words. Hide your servant behind the cross. Yeah. So that the only thing we see is you. It's in your own prayer. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You guys can be seated. Um, would somebody mind flipping a like light switch over there or something to give us a little bit more light, please? Yeah, that's good. Thank you, Austin. Second Timothy three sixteen says, "All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness." so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I'm going to read that one more time. Really listen to these words, okay? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Let me pray really quick before I get started. Father, thank you so much for the privilege it is to be able to teach tonight. Um, after a long break and some videos the past few weeks, it's um, good to to be able to prepare a lesson and to sit um, in front of these students and leaders and to teach what you've laid on my heart. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give me clear thoughts um, and that uh, distractions would be removed from my mind. And God, that I would speak from my heart and that the things that we talk about tonight would be um, helpful and that uh, each person in this room would learn something new about um, your grand story and the way that you've woven things together to bring us to this place um, in this time today in this room. God, we love you. We thank you that you have worked um, throughout history and that we are not exempt from that. And that there's been a long chain of people that have given their lives literally to make sure that we would have Bibles in our hands that we could read and understand. So God, I pray that this would be honoring to the legacy of those men and women that have gone before us um, and that we would leave this room feeling um, more thankful, more grateful for the reality that we have um, English printed words um, of your scriptures. God, we love you, um, and we uh, offer this time of study to you, and we ask that you be lifted high. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I know that this might be really hard to contemplate, but just for a second, think about what it would be like if you grew up in a culture where your language was neither, it wasn't even written down, much less in Scripture written all the way through the Old Testament and New Testament. Imagine yourself growing up instead of being in a culture where we probably have dozens of Bibles in our homes. We have none. Imagine what it would be like to have somebody show up at your home and was to tell you the gospel for the very first time and you had never read it before, you had never known it before, and you had never seen a Bible written in your language. It's hard for us to fathom, 
But the reality is, is that there are a lot of cultures just like that. I've shared multiple times down here um, about my time in Niger, Africa. I was with the Fulani people, and they speak Fafulde. And I know that you guys don't really know what Fafulde is, but it's a language that that um, particular tribe speaks. They had at the time that I went, there was there's work being done to translate it. But at the time that I went, um, they didn't have a Bible at all written. They hardly had stories translated orally from um, another language into their language, much less something that was written down. And and it baffles me because I, I remember sitting there and they had had some stories that were um, were orally uh, spoken on a tape player that we brought in and we played the tape. And so they're hearing this scripture. Now imagine again that you'd never seen it, never heard it before, and then some white guy shows up in your tribe and starts playing this 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 scripture and and the only thing you had heard up until that point was um, the Quran. The Quran. There might have been some people that were angry. There was one guy that was angry at me. Um, but for the most part, I'll tell you what happened. Every day, I would wake up and I would you know do my regular routine stuff, and then I would sit underneath um, this shade shelter because it was out in the middle of the desert. Um, and people would come from literally like miles to come to that shade shelter because they knew that I was there and my um, my missionary partner was there. And we would play those tapes for them just on repeat. And it's pretty funny because we didn't speak for full day very well. I could speak like introductory stuff, but um, we played them so much that like we could we could almost like uh, mimic what they were saying by the by the end of the summertime that I was there. Um, but I remember uh, the joy that some of those men had um, that came and heard these things that they would come back and hear them over and over and over again. And I remember thinking to myself how challenging that is for me because. I honestly take it for granted that I, I brought with me a Bible that was written in my language and I had every single verse in there. And I'm walking into a culture that doesn't even have one verse written in their language. And so tonight what I want to do is I want us to kind of step back in history because it hasn't always been that way. It hasn't always been that we've had an English Bible. The Bible was not written in English originally. I don't know if you guys know that or not. We're probably so self-centered in our culture that we think that sometimes. But it wasn't written in English originally. And, and the legacy that was, that, was, uh, that was carried out throughout history with men and women literally being killed for translating the Bible into what we see right now, English. Literally killed. Those men and women that have gone before us have afforded us with their blood with their long, tedious, at first, for thousands of years, handwritten copies so that we could have copies sitting in front of us today that look like this. And yet in our culture, it's like, hey, you know, that's no big deal. It's pretty normal. Well, when we look back in history, it's not normal. And it's extraordinary that we even have the Word of God sitting in front of us that is um, God-breathed and inspired. And what a precious gift this is that God has given us through the blood of the martyrs and the tedious task of translators and, um, and scribes throughout history. So tonight I've printed off um, uh, little lesson sheets and the reason that I did that is that we're going to talk about a lot of details um, tonight that I would like you guys to take notes on because I think that it's just helpful um, to know some of these things because 
a lot of times, unfortunately, atheists, agnostics, they have more understanding of our Bible than we do ourselves. And so, so part of this is going to be, uh, um, just giving you guys information about, like, some historical mile markers. Um, but, but don't miss the point that God has been weaving this together so that you can sit here and have a Bible sitting in your lap. And it's extraordinary. It's not ordinary. It's extraordinary. So, um, if you do have that, make sure you got a pen and everything. Um, and we're going to talk about the process that it took from God divinely speaking, we just saw in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that God inspired the Word of God. So from God speaking the Word all the way through um, the steps of getting it to us in English. Okay, So the first step, which we just talked about, is divine authorship. Divine authorship. So it's very clear that, that this is saying that God breathed that he spoke these words. But you say, well, Jonathan, isn't there a lot of um, uh, authors throughout the Bible, right? And don't we see that there's different writing styles and so forth that come out in different authorships throughout the Bible? Absolutely. Absolutely. God divinely inspires Scripture. He speaks it, but he uses human beings that are completely unique, they have a cultural context that they're living in, so they're writing from that perspective. They have different gifts and abilities. Different authors in the Bible have different educational levels. And, and we're going to talk about it here in a second, but, but there's people that actually study like, okay, so how do we know that this is Paul's letter? Well, because there's certain characteristics about Paul's writing that are unique to him. But just because Paul is unique in the way that he writes doesn't mean that it's not God-breathed. It's all divinely inspired. He just uses human beings throughout history in order to, to put this stuff down on paper. At that time, it was on scrolls and parchment, you know, a book format um, later on. But people would literally, like, speak it, and there's a guy there writing it. And then they would have that copy, and we're going to talk about this here in a second, but they would have that copy, and they would just copy it and copy it and copy it and copy it. So um, divine authorship through human beings. So when they wrote these texts, we call these the autographs. Now, you guys all know what an autograph is. It's, you, you go to Hollywood or you go to a ba- baseball game or something like that, and you get an autograph. Well, an autograph um, is an original. Like, it's original to that person. So if I showed you an autograph right now of um, Tom Brady, right? So, okay, I know. That was, that, that was hitting on a, a, a sore subject for some people. Okay. If I showed you an autograph of Tom Brady, just put the Super Bowl aside for a second, you would know, you would know, especially if I had like a little certificate and everything, that that's an, an autograph, okay, that he himself took his hand and did all this stuff with. Okay, the original. Now, if I showed you something that looked like his autograph, but I was the one that did it, right? I just basically forged it. That would, what is that? Is that an autograph? It is, yeah, it's, it is illegal, and it's not an autograph. It's not an autograph at all. It's a copy of his autograph, which isn't near as valuable um, in this sense, like in a you know, like our culture sense. But it's not near as valuable. But the originals are called autographs. Okay. Now I'm going to blow your mind here for a second because you're thinking to yourself, okay, so these original autographs, where are they? So you look at all these books of the Bible, and somewhere along the way, there was an original autograph divinely inspired by God through a human being that wrote it down. 
Unfortunately, we don't have any of the autographs left because they're so old um, that, like, they probably, uh, especially the Old Testament autographs that were written on parchment probably decayed and, like, are gone. Um, the New Testament, we have some that are, are in the first century that are very, very, very close to the original autographs, but we don't have the original autographs of, like, Paul, for instance, or, or James, or John. Um, so we don't have the autographs. So how in the world, then, do we have what we have today? How is it that we have um, 2 Timothy, for instance, that we just read from, and yet we don't have the autograph, the original text that Paul wrote himself? Some, a lot of times Paul would use somebody else to write and he would just speak, but that's beside the point, um, that Paul wrote himself. Okay. Well, this is how it works. Initially, it was orally passed down, Okay, so especially in the Old Testament. Um, it was an oral tradition. So what that means is that in our culture, we, we generally pass information down by writing it and documenting it and having the data. Back then, especially like early Old Testament, they didn't even have a way to really write something down um, in, this, in the ways that like you guys are writing right now. Like we, we take this for granted that we have a pen in our hand and we have ink and we put it on a piece of paper. Well, back then, it was not that easy. It was not that easy. And so they would orally pass down the tradition. And a lot of people, especially um, people that argue whether Scripture is um, accurate, will say, well, how is it that it's, it's accurate if it was passed orally, especially the Old Testament, it was passed orally for so long? Like, how is it that once they wrote it down, that they knew that they had it exactly the way that it was? And the best um, answer to that is that if you grew up in an oral tradition, if you grew up in an oral tradition and that was the way that you passed information along, like these, these people were very good at memorizing things, extremely good at memorizing things because they didn't, they didn't have the luxury of going to Wikipedia and letting it be their brain. They didn't have the luxury of being able to just say, well, I'll just run down to the library real quick and check the data on that. They didn't have the luxury of having the Internet. I mean, I know that this is obvious, but think about it in the context that if you're sitting around the campfire, you hardly have, like, you know, like anything to write on. They a lot of times would just write on pot shards, which are broken pot pieces, and, like, like to take little notes. You don't have anything. You're sitting around and you hear the same stories over and over and over and over and over again taught by Grandpa. Well, Grandpa had his Grandpa teach him, and his Grandpa taught him, and it was over and over and over again. It wasn't like we're living in a culture today where everything's so fast-paced and we got data that's already stored for us so we don't have to store it ourselves, but it was a, an oral tradition of passing it along. It's a, a rich, rich um, history that, that we just don't get in our culture because we have no concept of that. None. Okay? Um, for instance, in a lot of them, they use... Uh, um, gosh, I'm going to mess this up. What's the one where they use the first letter of the alphabet? An acronym? Is it an acronym? Sweet. Okay, I was thinking the right. I, it, yeah, I was thinking the right word. Okay. Yeah. So, so in the original text, oftentimes they would use acronyms like memory devices in order for people to remember what was like next in order. Does that make sense? We don't see that in our English language because when they translate it, it doesn't translate one to one. Like our alphabet is different than the Hebrew alphabet, so therefore it's no longer an acronym. But if you were to look at the Hebrew, you would see that it's an acronym. Does that make sense? So they had these things built in. Oh, you're making a confused face. It's okay. We're going to continue to move on because I'm, I'm kind of diverging. But um, it, these, okay, so they were written down and then they were hand copied until the mid-1400s. 1440, people. Like, think about that for a second. 
hundred years, about, between when Jesus was on the earth to the first printing press. So, the way that that looked was that there were these people called scribes, and I know that all of you guys pretty much know what a scribe is, but really think about this. No electricity. Homeboy sitting in his house, probably not a house, but sitting somewhere, um, with a lamp on, a.k.a., you know, I showed you a lamp from biblical times. It's a candle. Have that on, looking at an original and copying it. Okay? Over and over and over and over again. Can you imagine how long it would take you? Erin actually probably would understand this more than anybody in this room um, with her rewriting. Sorry, I just dumped stuff out of your Bible. Um, But can you imagine how long it would take you to copy even one book of the Bible? With electricity, where you can extend the day and you can kind of do your thing. Back then, it wasn't like that. It was very tedious. Think about doing that by candlelight. Think about that, Aaron. Doing it by candlelight and trying to copy, trying to read. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this was, this was the experience for, well, really more than 1400 years because the Old Testament was the same way. But let's just talk specifically about the New Testament. They experienced from about 40 AD all the way up to 1440 AD where people would just pass it along and copy it and copy it and copy it and copy it. We have copies that are really close to the autographs but not the autographs. Okay, so are you guys following me here? Okay, so that was until the 1440, or well, 1400s, 1440. Um, But we still have, get this, 5,000 manuscripts. Okay, so the manuscripts aren't the autographs, but they're the manual script. You get it? Okay, like manually writing, manually copying. The manuscripts, we have over 5,000 of them for the New Testament. How do you erase that anyway? Like if you messed up and you were scribed? Okay, so we're, we're going to talk about that here in a second because there were errors that were made, but they weren't, weren't significant. Okay, so there's 5,000 5, manuscripts. And you say, well, why is that significant? Look at me, guys. This is very significant. Because atheists and people that want to question whether the Bible is, is actually accurate to what it actually was whenever the autograph was, was written, I want to say, well, you don't have the original text, so how do you know? We have 5,000. Now, I don't know the number, but it's like literally, I don't even think it's in the teens of um, major works from the Greco-Roman world like Plato's something or another, and, um, and yet they'll sit there and say, well, we don't have the autograph of that, but we know that this is uh, what Plato wrote. And we only have 14 to, to try to, you know, try to compare and contrast and make sure that we got the right thing. We have 5,000. 5,000. 5,000. Yeah, and so what's really cool about this is that you got 5,000 manuscripts. So, so we have these guys called textual critics, like these, these really smart guys. And so they look at all these, okay? And they're like kind of lining them up and they aren't all complete. So like, it's like, okay, so I might have like 1st John 1 through, you know, like, uh, chapter one through chapter two, but the other one, like, maybe got, like, <laughs> ripped off and turned into a grocery list or something like that, okay? <laughs> but you got that piece, and then you got, like, a piece over here, and you got a piece over here, and you got a piece over here, and then there's some that you might have the entire book, but it's, it's a, you know, manuscript. So, you got these really smart guys that know how old these manuscripts are based on the way that they wrote, what they wrote on, and how they look, 
and they look at them and they say, okay, this one's really, really close to the original. And because this one's longer, I know that that one probably like isn't as close to the original. So they they go through all these 5,000 manuscripts. That's just for the New Testament, not the Old Testament. They go through all these, and then they put together what we call... Um, uh, oh, I've already, okay, so I need to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls really quick. Um, so these are the scribes here, and I'm going to get back to that uh, point. Don't let me forget, Hannah. Okay. Um, so these are the scribes. So... Um, so this is what it kind of looked like uh, for them to to make copies of scripture. Yeah, but it's like the thing is, is that they took so much care in what they're doing, and they were highly trained in what they were doing that that they would painstakingly copy over and over and over and over again to preserve the written word. This is long, way before. Way before English. This is Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Hebrew and Aramaic are the original languages, and I'm going to get to that, I think. Um, yeah, I will. So, we'll talk about that here in a second. So, this is what um, a Hebrew manuscript would look like. Okay, so this, this is actually a picture of one of the um, parchments from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, does anybody know what the Dead Sea, Dead sea Scrolls are? Yeah, William? Yes, yes, and not an island, but you're right with a kid, okay? So the way, okay, so this is the Greek, um, some Greek manuscripts here, okay? Um, so this is what happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls. You got a, a, a group of people, and they don't really know exactly why they were copying them. They think that they were copying them and hiding them during a period of, like, them basically being at war and were afraid that the other people would come in and destroy all their copies of the Old Testament, so they think that these guys went out and they made copies of the Old Testament, hid them in jars and put them in caves. I've been here. Literally looked at these caves. Okay? And so the, um, the story is, is that a shepherd boy lost his sheep and he thought that he had like gone into one of these caves, picked up a rock and was just throwing rocks into the cave to try to get the sheep to come out. But when he threw it in, he heard something shatter. And he was like, okay, that's weird. So he walked in there and they start finding, and he found one of those jars up there um, shattered, and he's got their scrolls in it, and he's like, "Okay, this is this is something that I need to report." So they report it, and it's it's the oldest manuscript that we have of most of the Old Testament. I mean, the vast majority of the Old Testament books are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's why it's so um, significant that these were found. But like, so they started searching the other caves around there, and they got like pictures of all these caves, and they found different parts of the Old Testament in different parts of those caves. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, okay, so one of the cool things about the manuscripts, like, is that we also have a ton of, like, really smart archaeologists that are out there. And so, and we're going to talk about this with the translations because through time, how archaeology has progressed, that's also given us the ability to find new manuscripts and given us the ability to date those manuscripts better. And so what's neat about this is that more than likely more manuscripts are going to be found like on a continual basis because especially over in the Holy Land, they're always doing ex- excavation and so forth. And all that does is it continues to support what we have in our English Bible because what the atheists and the agnostics want to say is, well, you know, it's just a matter of time before you find something that's like a manuscript that's really close to the autograph and it's totally different than what, what your Bible says and then it's going to be disproven. But... Without fail, up in this point, 
even the earliest and earlier and earlier finds, like meaning closer to the autograph, it just validates all the more that what we have is very accurate to what the autographs were. Okay, so the Dead Sea Scrolls more than likely like will find more uh, manuscripts. I don't know exactly. They probably searched because this was such a big deal. They probably searched every single crack and crevice in that that valley. Uh, it was probably in a different picture. Yeah, I just grabbed one picture. Uh, so the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered um, in a series of 11 caves around the site known as Qumran near the Dead Sea in the west bank of the Jordan River um, between 1946 and 1956. So that's really recent, um, like when you're looking at just like the overall timeline. Uh, and uh, a Bedouin shepherd and a team of archaeologists found it. Uh, the origin of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written between 150 B.C. and 70 A.D., 150 B.C. and 70 A.D., so these manuscripts were written like either before or during the time of Jesus. Like, that's a long time ago. A long time ago. And up until the point that they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I don't know the exact date, but the other reason why this was so significant is that we didn't have a lot of really old manuscripts of the Old Testament. We did for the New Testament, but not the Old Testament. So when they found these, everybody's flipping out. They're like, this is the best thing ever. Um, and so what's really cool is that it just validated what we have in our English, well, you know, original text, English Bibles, Hebrew Bibles, and so forth. It just validated the accuracy of what we have is closer um, to what the autographs were. Okay. So, uh, okay, so then something changed in 1440. It's called the Gutenberg. It's a fun word to say. Everybody say it together. Gutenberg. Gutenberg, yeah. Gutenberg. Say, it, say it really southern. Gutenberg. Um, that's not a cheese. However, I think that they should probably make a cheese called Gutenberg cheese. That's it's true, yeah, yeah. And maybe like cut them into little letters because it's the printing press. Okay, so in 1440, in 1440, the printing press was invented. So for 1400 years plus, talking from the New Testament up, but for 1400 years plus, people were doing this, the scribes. And then the printing press is invented. Guess what the first book on the printing press was? The Bible. So they're called the Gutenberg Bibles, um, and I think, I don't know how many copies there are, I think that there might only be like two or three. And so the very first Bible to be printed, or the very first thing to be printed on a printing press, period, um, is a Bible, which is really cool, um, and the, that Bible itself is written in Latin, okay? Okay, so, so, okay, hold on one second. So it was written in Latin. Now, the original uh, language, I'm going to get to this, uh, hold on one second. Do what? Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna fire ahead because I'm gonna uh, hit on what I was about to talk about. Again, forgive me if I um, skip past. I know that this is a lot of information. So, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls contain most of the Old Testament. So, step five. So, the copies of the autographs. Copy, 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 and then you, uh, you got the well even before the printing press. But the critical text through using textual criticism. Okay, so follow me here. So these really smart guys look at all these manuscripts. Okay. And they say, okay, this one, they have criteria. And um, they were actually like on the forefront of what, what we now know as textual criticism. So there's other disciplines that actually use what these biblical scholars were using, textual criticism, to try to figure out, okay, which one's the closest? How is it the oldest? How can we uh, figure out who wrote it, how it was written, when it was written, all this stuff. And they have all these different criteria. But what they do, because they have copies of copies of copies, you've got 5,000 of them, then we have duplicates of some, Right? 
and we have some that are like a little variance. And so let me talk about this for a second. So when they're making copies of copies of copies, sometimes um, just by human error, there might be a word where they left off a letter on accident, or there might be a, um, a potentially they're going along. You ever do this where you're like copying something, you just skip a line on accident? We have manuscripts that that on accident the scribe skips a line, right? But for the most part, those those accidents, those mistakes, the differences, they have no bearing on anything theologically. None. I mean, it's like a misspelled word. But what people will try to tell you is, well, there's mistakes in the copies. Well, yeah, because there's human beings that are doing this, and yes, like there were times that they like made a mistake, but those mistakes hold no bearing on what the truth is in there. And what's even cooler is that these textual critics go into and they can say, okay, we know that this one was an accident. And so that's not as um, as important, so we're going to push that to the side and we're going to use this manuscript instead. So they go through all the manuscripts, and what they do is they make the most um, accurate and best critical text for the Old Testament and the New Testament. So basically it's a copy and paste type of deal where like if you were to be given a bunch of um, documents that were similar and you're trying to figure out what the best way is, so you would copy and paste like the best parts out of like these different documents. So basically they copy and paste, not really, um, but they copy and paste and they say, okay, this is the earliest best manuscripts that we have to date. So then we have the critical text. So you got the critical text that are written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Okay? You guys following me? Am I losing you? Okay. So, um, we got the critical text, and that's important because that's what the translators use. So the translators use the critical text. The importance of that is that as time goes along, um, like what you said, Mason, like in asking if there's more scrolls out there, as time goes along, there's more discoveries. Some of those texts are older, and they aren't as important, and it's kind of like nice to have them. They bolster things, but really it's not like super important. But let's just say that it comes, for whatever reason, we come across an autograph or something that's like literally like a copy of the very first autograph. Well, these textual critics are constantly um, updating this. So what they'll do is they'll take out what they had and they'll put in the best critical text. doesn't mean that they're different. It just means that it's earlier. It's, it's just closer to the autograph. Does that make sense? And so, so then translators use these, okay? And they come to them and they say, okay, you got really smart people that know Hebrew and Aramaic. And they come to the, the critical text that these scholars have put together and they say, okay, we're going to use this and that's going to be the basis of our translation into whatever language it is. Okay, see how we're getting closer to where we're at? Okay, and also with the Greek text, there's a critical text for that as well. So translators use those. So the original um, Old Testament languages are Hebrew and Aramaic. Most of it's Hebrew. Um, and then the New Testament uh, language is originally Greek. Okay? So they take these critical texts um, and then they make translations. Okay, so they take it from the original language into another language. Now, in that, there's already difficulty because there's not one language that's exactly the same as another language. So, um, so there's difficulty when, and this is part of the reason we have so many translations, is that uh, these translators come in and they take different um, approaches to translating. Because if you were to translate it literally word for word, first off, there's words in the like original language, like let's just say love. There's, there's th- three Three, or maybe four, oh my gosh, my brain's going, it's fried. Three, we'll just say three right now, um, types of uh, love 
written in Greek, okay? Three different, very distinct types of love. So if you came across agape or if you came across phileo or you came across um, eros, then you would, in English, just translate it love, period. But those three loves are very different. You see what I'm saying? So there's already difficulty whenever you're translating. But, um, but regardless, they use these critical texts to come along and to make these translations. In addition to words being a little bit different, the structure is different. So if you were to do word for word in the Greek, it would make absolutely no sense. I mean, it would. You would be able to kind of parse it apart and be like, okay, maybe this is what they're talking about. But the, the structure of their sentences are so different. And in Hebrew, it's so different that if you just did, okay, love, like it, it, it could be something like love, Peter, um, actually, I'm going to butcher this, but like the the way that we um, the way that we go uh, like through our sentence structure is very different than Greek. So um, there's already a a barrier there. Okay, so I know that I'm losing you, so just hang in there with me. Okay, so um, they uh, make these English translations or translations into whatever language it is, but there's already a barrier. You guys following me? I think I maybe spent a little bit too much time on that. You guys are smart. You already know that. Okay, so um, these are the two kind of uh, streams of uh, translating, okay? You got formal or word-for-word, and then you got, like, on one side, formal word-for-word, and then on the other side, you have functional thought-for-thought, okay? So the reason that this is important is that if there's different types of words and there's different types of word structures um, and sentence structures, then these translators come in, and there's different translations, and based on the translation... You're going to have something that's closer to word for word, even if it's kind of awkward sounding. And then you're going to have something over here that's more thought for thought. So they'll take like the whole section, try to stay as close to the original wording, but they'll kind of jumble it around and try to get the thought of that verse instead of like trying to stay word for word. You guys following me? Okay, so this is important because you're going to go into Lifeway one day and you're going to say, man, I want a Bible. But you walk into Lifeway and how many translations are there? Yeah, I don't even know how many. Like it's just crazy, okay? Like tons of translations. So this is important because if you just go in there and you're like, well, you know, like it's no big deal. I'll just grab one and, and roll out. Well, it, it, depending on what you're using it for, it's really important. So when I study to teach you guys, I, I use a word-for-word or close-to-word-for-word Bible. Why do I do that? Because I want to see what's closest to the original text that I can in the English as opposed to having a translating committee saying, okay, well, this is kind of what we think it's saying. Okay, you following me? Now, if I was doing a devotional, though, then I might want a thought for thought. And then we got the spectrum, okay? So let me go through kind of a really quick spectrum. You guys still following me here? Okay, so uh, let's talk about this for a second. Who in here uh, has a King James Bible? Okay, so quite a few people have a King James Bible. Okay, so... I know that there's a lot of people in here, um, or maybe not even in here, there's a lot of people that say, King James and only King James, right? Okay. So, it's interesting because the King James, um, if you look at the history of the King James, it, the last revision for the King James was like in the 1700s sometimes. And I don't know when it was exactly, but it was like 1711 or something like that. Um, and so, since 1711, how many, uh, how many manuscripts do you think have been found that are closer to the original? whole lot. I don't know how many, but a whole lot more. I mean, you got the Dead Sea Scrolls just as one example. It was, they were found, you know, in the 1900s. And so, so the translators of the King James were using manuscripts that weren't as um, close to the original autographs as what we have today. So it's not saying that it's invalid because, again, the, the, the copies that we have, the copies of the, of the copies, that they are very accurate. But just to say, like, in, 
when you're looking at it from a textual critic perspective, it's like, well, because they didn't use the most recent manuscripts, it's difficult for um, them to uh, know what was the absolute like closest to the autograph. Does that make sense? Okay, anyways. But it is a very word-for-word um, translation, but the, uh, the critical texts that they used were just, at, it, it was just dated a little bit. Okay, you guys follow me? Okay, gosh, I'm going to fly through this. Okay, HCSB. Who in here knows what that is? Yeah, Southern Baptist in the house. Okay, so this is um, this is Lifeway's uh, translation. I think that they did this because they were tired of paying royalties to other people. I might be speaking out of turn. I don't really know why they did it. But um, this is uh, Lifeway's translation as as of now. Um, they're actually coming out with another translation. I don't know much about that. But um, this is going to be much more word for word. Okay, this is close to the ESV, which is what I use, the English Standard Version. Um, very close to word for word, so they aren't looking at much, like as much about thought for thought, and they're not really as concerned about it flowing when you're reading it. Okay. Holman, Holman Christian um, Standard Bible. Yeah. Okay. So in the middle, this is exactly what the NIV was trying to do. They were trying to land right in the middle. So there's a spectrum. Between like word for word, really close to the original, middle, NIV, and then you got some over here that tend to be more thought for thought. Okay, so um, the NIV is right in the middle, and then you kind of sway over, and I, I don't have a Bible that's kind of in between the NIV and the NLT, um, but the NLT is definitely uh, thought for thought. So if you read this, and you read uh, the HCSB or the ESV, or Aaron has the NRSV, that would be over here. If you read this and read that, you'll see that this reads a whole lot easier because it just flows, because they are trying to like translate it closely, but they're trying to make it more like fluid and um, understand. Huh? American Bible. An American Bible, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then this was crazy. When I was doing study, you know down here I've said that um, the message is a paraphrase. When I was doing study, uh, this was actually put on the, the spectrum of translations. The reason for that, and I mean it's way over here thought for thought, but the reason for that is that homeboy Eugene Peterson was looking at the original text when he translated this. Okay, um, And he knows the original languages very well. He's very smart. Um, but obviously this is um, way over here. Like it's as close to a paraphrase as you can get. Okay, he just His translation isn't... Um, like regular English, like what we see in these, it's more English like modern day if you were to read an email, okay? And then you have paraphrases that are over here, um, and these are sometimes helpful, but like uh, in reality, like the paraphrases, they're probably um, uh, giving a little bit too much of their own thoughts and interpretation into it uh, in order for it to be a really good study Bible. Does that make sense? Okay, goodness gracious. All right. So... Formal word for word, functional thought for thought. And we are almost done, so just hang in there. Okay, so this is the application. So choose the translation that fits you and fits your purpose. If you're doing a devotional, it makes total sense to do a thought for thought. If you're doing a Bible study, it makes more sense to do a word for word type of deal. If, if you're wanting to just land in between, NIV. If you're wanting to have something that's more of a paraphrase that maybe is a good thing for you to read just to get more understanding about what this might mean, that might be the thing. But choose the translation that works for you. So through history, English has changed. If you pick up a King James Bible and it's written in Old English, it's proof that English has changed. 
And so the new translations are coming out and they're using the language of the day. I mean, perfect example is Eugene Peterson's message. Um, but the English language is changing and it will always be changing, so there will be a need for new translations or updates or revisions and so forth. Um, one more point. Okay. I'm so sorry. There's just so much information. It's so good. Okay. So if you pick up a Bible, you can normally open it up to the front and see, okay, who translated this. And the, the reason that that's important is that, like, sometimes you have an entire committee of people that have translated it. Why would that be important? Well, that would be important because that means that they got experts in, like, different books, different time periods, different parts of the language. They got really smart people. Then they got really smart people to talk with those really smart people to make sure that they aren't translating something into the text because of their own, like, theological bent. So if you're to choose one, it's better to choose a translation that has a committee, a translating committee, um, and again, that will be at the front of the Bible, as opposed to something like this, where, like, I love the message, but it was one dude, Eugene Peterson, right? So that just limits um, his expertise. He's not going to be, have as much expertise as an entire committee of theologians and really smart people that know the Bible frontwards and backwards and the original language frontwards and backwards. He knows a lot, but you see how that would be a little bit like, uh, I don't like to say this, but I'm just going to say inferior to um, a translation with a committee of like really bright and brilliant people. You guys following me? Okay. A little bit less, yeah. Um, So choose a translation that fits you and choose a translation, um, or at least try to, that uh, is translated by a committee. Okay, so I brought this down here, um, and I just I want to come back to what the first point was, because now that we've talked about how the Bible got to us, and how like there have been people throughout history, and there's so much rich history that I'm not going to go into because it just would take too long and too many details, but so many rich, rich stories of men and women that have literally like given their lives for literally over thousand years like the bible was only in latin like it, it was in hebrew and greek and in aramaic but but other than that the only other language it was it was in latin and so i don't know if you know the guys like wickliffe anybody like wickliffe translators so these people go out into the bush and they translate um the Bible into people's languages. Well, talk about a rich tradition. Wycliffe was the first person to ever translate from Latin to English. And guess what it got him? Death. They murdered him for it. He, only, he, he didn't even get to live to translate the entire Old Testament. It was one of his colleagues that finished the translation. So he translated the New Testament and then was killed for it because it wasn't right for him to translate it into a common man's language. At that point, it, the only people that could read Latin and understand Latin, the, the scriptures, were either extremely highly educated people or like the, the clergy, the, the, the pastors and the preachers at the church. So they would come into service, they would sit there and hear it in Latin, and they wouldn't understand any of it. And so, so Wycliffe set out to, to, to translate the Bible into a common man's language so that even the plowmen would understand and be able to read it. And he was killed for it. 
killed for it. And he wasn't the only one in this long, long um, line of people that have translated uh, the Bible into English that were persecuted, um, ridiculed, and killed. In fact, King James, uh, yeah, King James I, who uh, issued a decree to like, create the King James Version, even he was looked down upon um, because of uh, him meddling in the affairs of the church and translating um, what it was primary Latin at that point um, into another English translation. It's amazing. Amazing. Okay, William, what? Okay, wasn't it like the, some people didn't want them to translate it to where other people could read it because they were using it to get like money and stuff? Like, yes. Yes. It's actually, I mean, it's sad. It's really sad. Uh, and it's really cool to see how like these faithful men and women continued to stay true um, and made it uh, possible for us to have the Bible in our language. So at one point, somebody gave me a bunch of these. Um, and I don't know uh, like what happened. I think that they were just testing the binding or whatever. But this is uh, a Bible, um, an HCSB, with nothing in it. Why? So I brought this down here just as a visual. Imagine if this was our Bible. Because somebody along the way decided it's not worth the cost. My hope and my prayer is, is that our hunger and thirst and the way that we cherish the Word of God, that we don't see it as ordinary or, eh, you know, whatever, I'll just kind of like, I might read it, I might not. But that we would realize that there is a tremendous cost that has been paid for you to have a Bible sitting with you right now and have Bibles at your house that you can open up and access God-breathed words. God-breathed words. I wonder, I just wonder, if, if, we, if we were to kind of keep that in mind, like how our perspective on the Word of God would change. And I'm speaking to myself in that too. Because I have, out of all, everybody in this room, I probably have enough Bibles for everybody sitting here. Different translations. I take it for granted, just like almost everybody else in our culture. But my challenge, my encouragement to you is to remember that it didn't have to be that way. There are people that, that sacrifice in order for it to be that way. Not for us to take advantage of it. But for us to see it and understand it and believe it. Um, Let's pray, and as I'm praying, if the band will go ahead and come up, we have one more song. Um, <clears throat> you guys will bow with me. Father, thank you so much for weaving together uh, the, t- the, the story from the oral tradition of the Old Testament to the, um, to the scrolls that were copied to the books that were copied by hand, all those manuscripts that that took hours and hours and probably months and months to copy. That there were men that gave their lives in order to translate the Scriptures into English so that the common man at that time could understand them. God, I pray that you would help us to not take for granted the fact that we have Bibles. That we can access your word. We can know what you've called us to. 
and that we can live our lives by that. God, thank you so much. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.